welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. Outcast, and we are finishing that series up today. And this this series stems from Matthew chapter one. Go ahead and go to Luke one, but it stems from Matthew chapter one and the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In this genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find five people who don't really belong. Five, five people who shouldn't have been recorded. Five women in a genealogy that should have been all men. And so we have to ask ourselves, why were they in here? And as we've studied this, we found out that this is, this is one of God's ways of telling us about his heart for the outcast. His heart for the broken. His heart for the people who, who the world seems to leave behind. And we're going to finish that today with the last name. It's somebody that we've probably all heard of. Now, this is a little bit of a different story from our other outcasts. And so we're coming at this a different direction this morning. If you've got your Bibles open, we're going to be in Luke 1, and we're going to read 26 through 33. And in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God unto a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came in unto her and said, Hail, thou, thou art, thou, thou, yeah, thou that art highly favored, and the Lord is with thee, blessed art thou among women. And when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and cast her mind to what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said unto her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great, and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign in the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So some of you guys, I know what you're thinking. You're sitting here, and you've had your Christmas music on for three weeks, and you're like, ah, it's here, it's Christmas, right? It's the Christmas story. We're finally there, and it just pump the brakes. We're not quite there yet. we got to get through Thanksgiving first. We are introducing ourselves, not necessarily to the Christmas story, but to the person of Mary and who she is. And, and in some circles, you might have heard of Mary like she's some kind of this perfect person who never did anything wrong, this perfect person who God looked down and said, she's perfect, she can be the mother of God. But if you take it straight from the Bible, Mary was just a normal person. She, she was just like you and me. There, there was nothing necessarily special about her. And if you notice from our, our text this morning, she doesn't really fit the outcast mold we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, does she? There's nothing in there that tells me that, that Mary was an outcast. She was normal. Everything seemed to be going good for her up until the point that, you know, an angel comes to her and that kind of changes everything. Most theologians and historians agree that Mary was probably somewhere between 14 to 15 years old, which was kind of at that time considered the beginning of adulthood. I don't know when this, this thing about teenagers, you know, from 13 to 21, you get a free pass. You don't have any responsibility. You do whatever you want. And it's just like that part of your life doesn't exist. That's relatively new. That didn't happen in these times. And so when a child became to the point where they were of childbearing age, they were considered an adult. And what we learn about Mary is that Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, betrothal is an interesting thing because it's different from our culture. When it comes to romance, we really have like, like four stages of romance, right? Uh, like the first stage is we're talking. I've met someone that I feel is attractive, and we're not really dating. We're not together, but I'm just I'm kind of talking to them. I'm getting to know them a little bit. 
And that stage may last a couple weeks. It may last a couple months. And if, if that progresses, we get to dating. And dating is something that in our society has kind of taken over. That The concept of dating is really only about 100 years old. Before, before the 1900s, people did not date the way that we date today. And that's where we kind of come together and we say, okay, we're in a relationship. We're committed to each other, but we can break this off at any time. And so for some people, that, that dating period might last three months, and for some people it might last three years. But we're getting to know each other, but we're not legally connected. And then comes the engagement, right? Like, I've been with this person long enough. I want to spend the rest of my life with them. I found out everything I need to know. And we seal that promise with a diamond ring. It's a, it's a little bit of a contract there. It's kind of like, hey, if you want to marry me, you can accept this really pretty shiny rock. I never really understood why it worked that way. But I, I'm, not a, I'm not a woman, so I don't know. But that's kind of what we do. It's like, I know I'm not much, but this cost me several thousand dollars. Maybe you'll take that. And so in that moment, we're somewhat contractually obligated, right? Like, I accept your gift of a ring. And that means I will marry you one day. And that can pretty easily be undone by giving that ring back or throwing it in the river, depending on, on how that ends, right? And then we get to the I do's. We get to the point where, where we come up to the church and we put on a white dress. And then I don't know what my wife wears. No, I'm kidding. We, we put on a suit and a white dress and we come before all of our friends and family. And we have this ceremony where, where we swear to be with each other forever. And we have no clue what we're getting ourselves into at that exact moment. That, that's, what, that's what marriage looks like today. But at this time, they did it a little bit different. They take out the talking and the dating part. The engagement was a little bit different. And of course, marriage is just marriage where we're, we're stuck with each other forever. What they did at this time is the engagement period actually started first. At this time, there was no concept of, of like falling in love and dating someone and deciding you wanted to marry them. For the most part, people went into prearranged marriages. Two, two families with a similar background would come together and say, hey, you've got a son, I've got a daughter. Let's, let's arrange their marriages. So that was engagement. It's like this, they're promised when they get old enough to be married, when they get to 13 or 14. When they get to 13 or 14, there, there comes into this mindset, this idea of being betrothed to each other. And this is actually a legal agreement. They have a ceremony and a legal agreement where it seals that, that marriage together. At this time, they're actually considered man and wife, but they don't live as man and wife. This is the contract where they enter in and the man knows, I've got to go prepare for my wife. I've got to go prepare a place for her to come, a place for her to live, all the fancy pillows she's going to want, all of those kind of things. And that's the betrothal period. And that takes about a year. So legally, they're connected as man and wife, but they're not allowed to live as man and wife up until the point they have the final ceremony, the actual marriage ceremony when the man gets his house ready. And so when, when the Bible says that Mary was a spouse, that's another word for she was betrothed. She was legally bound to marry Joseph, but she wasn't quite there just yet. And so we know from Mary that they were not living as husband and wife. They weren't in the same house. They were, weren't in the same bed. And Mary's just in the middle of this. That's when God has a plan for Mary. Has God ever interrupted your plans for your life? Like, I got it figured out, I know what's going on, and God's like, boom, no, something, something else coming up here. Well, very few of us have had what Mary had. Mary had an angel come visit her. And this angel comes to her and says, you are blessed, you are special, everything's good for you. I love Gabriel. I think, I don't know if angels get giddy, but Gabriel was giddy. He's like, Mary, you're so blessed. And she's like, whoa, why? That's, that's literally what it says. She says, she pondered, what kind of salutation is this? Well, why, why does he come to me that? And Gabriel explains to her, Mary, you're going to have a child. And this child is going to be the savior of the world. He's going to be the king of the world. This is the promised Messiah. And you're going to get to be mom. And Mary goes, yes. But then she says, um, question, Mr. Gabriel, Mr. Mr. Archangel, um, th there's a very certain way that you get a child, 
And I haven't done that quite yet. Like, like we're not there. So how on earth am I going to get pregnant without doing that? I'm not married, and I, I just can't get to that point just, just quite yet. So, so how's this going to work? And that's when Gabriel comes to her, and he says, okay, um, uh, God's going to be the father of your child. You're not going to need a physical father. God's going to be the child. You're going to have this conception without ever doing that certain thing. And, and that's where Jesus is going to come from. That's, that's going to be part of his ministry and part of his testimony throughout the ages. God will be the father of this child. Now, at that moment, Mary's life changes forever. You got to understand that Mary is not married, and she lives in a very religious society. Like, for, for us, an unmarried person being pregnant in today's world, that's it's relatively common. Back, back at this time in Israel, this was the scandal to end all scandals. Mary came from, from somewhat of a decent family. They had a royal lineage. It, it does tell us that she was poor, but th there was an amount of prestige to being Mary and part of her family. And so what Mary is now going to do is basically become the family disgrace. And listen to, what, listen to what this actually means. Is God's calling for Mary's life was for her to become the family embarrassment. Now you and I have heard the Christmas story enough. This, this all kind of seems normal to us. Like, yes, angel came down to Mary. And, and then, you know, Mary gets pregnant. Mary has Jesus. Like, we've heard that a thousand times. It's just normal to us. We just accept it. But that's a crazy story to be trying to explain to your mom and dad when you show up pregnant. Uh, imagine what Mary had to do. She had to gather her family and friends along, and she goes, everybody, I am with child. Mary, you're not married. Is it Joseph? What are you doing? And Mary goes, no, 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 no. Uh, the father of my baby is God. Mary, you have lost it. You, you've jumped off your rocker. And she goes, no, it's true. An angel told me. Imagine if I tried that today. Actually, I did try that today when Jessica was pregnant with Oakley. I, I was telling my family, I don't know where that baby come from, right? And nobody believed me, except for my mama, and she probably would have believed me if I told her I was born of a virgin birth, right? Like, like, but, but nobody would believe that. Everybody's like, you're crazy. And, and Mary is adamant about the story. No, an angel come to me. All of a sudden, I was pregnant. I haven't been close to Joseph. I haven't been close to anybody else. I am pregnant by God. Nobody believes Mary. And Mary becomes an outcast in her own family. If you go back to the same story as recorded in Matthew chapter 1, if you go back to that, you see Joseph starts divorce proceedings. He, he, he comes home. Can you imagine that conversation? He goes, Mary, you're, you're getting a little thicker in the middle there. What's going on? And Mary tells him that story. Angel came to me, pregnant, no father. And Joseph goes, ah, I'm out. And so he privately goes and he starts doing the paperwork to, to put her aside, to, not, to not, be, not to be his husband, not to be her husband. And so Mary's in a position where all she's done is follow what God has called her to do, and she's losing things. She's losing her future marriage. Nobody's going to marry her after she's had a child out of wedlock. Joseph is convinced that she cheated on him up until the point that an angel comes to Joseph and explains it to him. And this will haunt her forever. I don't want to put words in the Bible that aren't there, but I will ask this question. Have you ever noticed the Bible says nothing about Mary's family? It doesn't talk about her mom or her dad or her brothers or her sisters? They're not mentioned in the story. And I would also ask you the question, why would a 14 or 15-year-old pregnant girl go live with a cousin for three months? That's, that's later in the story. Is it possible that Mary's own family turned their back on her because she was such an embarrassment to them? Is it possible that they didn't believe her either? Joseph, it took an angel for him to believe her. And this, this stigma is going to follow her for the rest of her life. If you go to John chapter 8, this is during Jesus' earthly ministry. 30-something years later, Jesus is in a debate with the Pharisees. And they come out, Jesus was like, oh yeah? Well, who's your dad? 
And, and they come at Jesus with, you know, well, we weren't born of fornication. We weren't born of sin. We, our parents were married when we were born. And they're throwing shade at Jesus like, where'd you come from? We know what your mom must have had to do. You know that the Pharisees are losing an argument when they break out the yo mama jokes, right? And, and so for even 30 years later, Mary still has to carry this around with her that everybody thinks I'm crazy and nobody believes my story, but all I did was follow God. And, and if you look at her story, there's nothing in here to tell us that she did anything to deserve this. See, Mary was not an outcast because of something she did. Mary became an outcast because she chose to follow the calling of God in her life. That brings us to our first take-home truth is truly following God is accepting a calling to live an outcast life. Truly following God is accepting a calling to live an outcast life. This is not just God's calling on Mary's life. This is what God calls you and me to when we accept his calling in our life. He calls us to live as an outcast in this world. He calls us to be different. If you go to Titus chapter 2, it describes what Jesus Christ is doing when he's building the church. It describes what he's looking for. And it uses these words. Like Jesus Christ is trying to bring to himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. You know what the word peculiar means? It means odd. It means different. It means, it means outcast. And so when we look at, at what we're doing as Christians, when we come to Jesus Christ, we can, look at, we can kind of find ourselves in this story of Mary. That to follow Jesus Christ, to follow God's calling in our life, may mean for us that we have to be willing to lose everything. We have to be willing to live as an outcast in this society. And one of the biggest problems with Christians today is we don't accept that part of the calling. We're perfectly willing to take the gift from Jesus Christ. Like, yeah, I'll go to heaven, Jesus. I'll put faith in you. We're willing to come to church on Sunday morning. We'll even wear the T-shirts, fearfully and wonderfully made. Pray hard. But how many people come to Jesus Christ with this heart and this willingness? Wherever you lead me, I will go. I will give up everything. I'm, I'm willing to be an outcast, to walk away from the world, and to walk with God. Many of us may think you hear that and you go, well, Brian's calling us to be nuns and monks. Like, we're going to sell everything we own. We're going to sell all of our clothes. We're going to wear sackcloth. And, and, and uh, you know, we're going to have to go all live together. And, and I love y'all, but uh, I, I don't want to live with y'all while we all wear sackcloth and don't take showers. Like, we're not going to do that. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you and I are called to be in this world, but to be different than this world. And that is the definition of being an outcast is, is you're in a society where you have to live, but you cannot belong in that society. The word holiness literally means to be set apart. And God's plan for our life is to make us holy, to make us outcast. In, in, in Luke 14, Jesus Christ is walking around. Jesus Christ is doing all kinds of things. He's healing blind people. He's healing leopards. He's feeding 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish. He's doing miraculous things. And Jesus is the talk of Israel. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. What's he going to do next? And so Jesus has this large gathering. Everywhere he goes, people are following him. Maybe, maybe he'll make money rain out of the sky. Maybe he'll fix me. Maybe, maybe he'll say something that I can really hang on to. And everybody's following him, but they're not following him for who he is. They're following him for what he can do for them. And Jesus turns around and he has this conversation with him. He says, listen, you guys, you, you've been physically following me. He said, I'm going down that road. And you're welcome to be my disciples. And you're welcome to be my followers. But listen, if, if you're going to follow me, you have to be willing to hate your mother and father. 
You have to be willing to walk away from your family. And knowing where he's going, he uses this imagery. He says, you have to be willing to carry your own cross. This is the symbol of death and suffering. You've got to be willing to pick up that cross and follow me. That's my road. I'm headed that way. And Jesus Christ knew that he would be crucified on a cross. And he knew that followers of him would be persecuted throughout the ages. He knew this wasn't always going to be about miracles and healings. And he said, if you cannot do that, if you can't follow me that way, he lays it out very simply, you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to be an outcast to follow God, you cannot belong to him. That's our our second take-home truth is this, is we should count the cost of the outcast life. We should count the cost of the outcast life. He follows that up by saying, you guys need to count the cost. You need to do some calculating to see if this is what you actually want. See, listen very carefully. Salvation is free. It costs you nothing. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. But if you accept the gift of God's salvation, it will cost you everything. It will mean giving up everything to follow Jesus Christ. If you truly come to him, you can't earn it. You can't be good enough for God. But that's what we say when we come to Jesus Christ is I give up my life to accept the life that you have for me. So we better do some calculating. A couple years ago, a close friend of mine goes to church up in Concord. He, uh, his church um, supports a church in India, and he's got a really cool story. They, they send them financial money. They have a pastor named Jacob. He is actually Indian, and um, this church just kind of supports them across the world. Well, Jacob came into town. He had got pretty close with my friend. Jacob came into town and was staying with him, and they brought him up to the school, and of course, Jacob's from a different country, so he's walking around talking to all these high school kids, and he's telling them stories. He's got some cool stories. He's got stories about elephants coming into the village, stories about walking up in the jungles and sitting on a rock for 30 minutes and when he gets up and starts to walk away he turns around and an 18 foot king cobra comes slithering out of that rock would have killed him instantly had it had bit him and and he's telling the kids all these stories they're talking about language and and something about Jacob just piqued my interest what's what's it like to be a Christian in India we live in the Bible Belt this is, this, is, this is rural Arkansas. Everybody and their mom goes to a church somewhere at least a couple times a year. But that's not how it is in India. India is a culture that is, is predominantly Hindu. And the people who aren't Hindu there are Muslim. There, there's really no room for Christianity. And so I, I really wanted to know, what's it like to be a Christian in India? And so I started hinting to my buddies like, man, I'd love to sit down with him for a couple of hours. My buddy, he, he missed it. Later on that day, I was like, I wish I had some time to ask Jacob some questions. He missed it again. And finally, I was like, man, I hope Jacob comes back to school so I can talk to him again before he leaves. And finally, my buddy's like, why don't you come over for supper and you talk to Jacob then? It's like, oh, okay, I never thought of that, right? Like, like, so I went and I ate supper with my buddy and Jacob. And afterwards, there was this really intense time where we sat in the living room and I interrogated Jacob. Like, it was really uncomfortable for everybody else, but I wanted some answers. What's it like to be a Christian in India? Jacob told me about how he came to know Christ and Jacob told me about his church and and I had this this one really particular question number one are you ever in danger because I'd heard the story of when when people from Arkansas had went to visit Jacob how, how the locals had been so mad that people were there trying to spread the name of Jesus that Jacob had to smuggle them out of town and hide them in a city two hours away because he feared for their lives so I wanted to know what that was like and, and this was the other thing I wanted to know in India, they have something called the caste system. It's a preset social order, like a social class that everybody lives in. 
And, and the people at the top do not talk to the people at the bottom. And you cannot choose your social class. What you are born into, you live in for the rest of your life. So if you're born in the bottom social class, you're just, that's it. They're called, they're literally called untouchables. If you're born as an untouchable, you're an untouchable for the rest of your life. The only way that you can change your class is if you marry someone in a lower class than you and you move down to their class. So I wanted to know, how does this work in a Christian church? Because you and I, we're brothers and sisters. I love you all. We are family. We're all equal here. There's, there's nobody greater than anybody else. But in that society, the lowest of the low cannot be with the highest of the high. And I asked Jacob, and first thing I asked him, I said, what, what caste are you? And he kind of ducked his head and he embarrassingly told me, he said, I'm, I'm a very high caste. He wouldn't tell me which one, but I got the idea that he was the, the top high caste, that he was the richest of the rich. And that means that he was born into a life of luxury. He had things in his life that nobody else had. We would almost call them royalty in our way of thinking. And it says, so Jacob, when, when you have church and you have these different people and you're spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, what, what happens? Because you can't, you can't sit with the untouchables if you're a high caste. You can't, you can't have people sitting next to each other calling each other brother and sister in Christ. And Jacob, he looks at me and goes, in church, there's no caste. The untouchables sit next to the very top of the caste and there is no division between them, which is the way church should be run. But listen to, to what I'm telling you about Jacob. Jacob lived in a country where he had to be an outcast to be a follower of God. He had to counter social norms in order to be a follower of Christ. And Jacob, while he is tolerated in that community, he's hated in that community. From time to time, they come and they attack the church. Or when people visit, they run them off. And I'm here to tell you that, that we don't live that lifestyle yet, but it is coming to America. I promise you. If you, if you watch the news at all, we are slowly merging to that direction where, G, where uh, Christianity is the outcast religion. Where people hate us because of our stances on our morals. It's getting worse and worse. John MacArthur, many of you have heard of him. He, he pastors a church in California. He has been threatened with being thrown in jail because he refuses to close his church down. They find him thousands of dollars. He's been harassed by his own government. It is coming to America that we will have to live the outcast life. So I guess that brings this question is, why would anybody follow God? If it's all so horrible, why would we follow God? If we're going to have to be outcast in society, if we're going to have to be hated, if we're going to have to be weird, if people are going to shy away from us because of our beliefs, why would I want to follow Christ? Why would you want to follow Christ? Why would we choose the outcast life? And it's because of this. It's the outcast life is a blessing. Our, our, our third take-home truth here is it is a blessing to be called to the outcast life. Let's, let's read back in Luke here, going over to verses 46 through 48. This is Mary speaking. She's done all these things. She's talking to her cousin Elizabeth. And, and Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, for he hath regarded the low of state of his handmaiden. For behold, for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. I want you to look at what Mary's saying. She, she accepts this calling in her life where she's going to lose family members, where she is going to be regarded as lower than dirt for the rest of her life because of what God called her to do. And she, this is what she said. She said, I am blessed to have this calling. This is something God has given me as a gift. And we see something special about where Mary is looking here. Mary is not looking at what she's losing. Mary is looking at what she's gaining. 
Mary, Mary sees what God is doing in her life and she accepts it as a blessing. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Brian, you just told me how horrible Mary's life is. You just told me how horrible it is to be an outcast. And now you're going to tell me it's a blessing to be an outcast, to live the outcast life? Yes, I will. I will because I live the outcast life. And many of you do too. And there's not a person in here that goes, I'd like to give that up. Every last one of us loves it. And so we count the cost of the outcast life. And we do something called a cost-to-benefit ratio. And everybody in our minds, we have this ability to do cost-to-benefit ratios. It sounds really fancy, but we do it every day. We do it especially with our finances. Like, yes, it's going to cost me X amount, $100 a month to buy that house, but I'll have a place to live. Some of us do that math, like on a Tuesday night when we've had a hard day. It's like, yeah, it's going to cost me $55 to buy my whole family fast food. But I don't have to cook and I don't have to do dishes. It's worth it. And so when we look at counting the cost of what God has called us to be and his calling on her life, here's what we find is that we get something better in return than what we give up. And that's what Mary says here. She does the cost to benefit ratio. She does the analysis and she says, well, yeah, I'm giving up this. I'm giving up a place of prestige. I'm giving up my reputation. I'm going to give up my friends. I'm going to give up my families. But it is worth it. What a blessing to be called to be an outcast and to live the outcast life. And if it was me, I would think this. Yeah, it's easy for her. Mary has a big calling, a big bold calling. Yeah, she's going to be, you know, called some names and people are going to make jokes about her, but Mary gets to bodily carry the Savior of the world into the world. That's a big, bold calling. On top of that, Jesus Christ was perfect, which means he was the perfect child. He never had a spanking. He never had time out. As a teenager, he never talked back. Some of your parents are like, sign me up for the outcast life if my teenagers never talk back to me, right? She, she had it easy. I, Brian, I could live the outcast life fully. I would be willing to give up everything if my calling was something like, like carrying the Savior of the world. But my calling's different. My calling's just being an outcast in society. My calling's being the weird person who walks away from conversations that, that aren't God isn't pleased with. My calling is, is being a little bit different and, and not liked by everybody. And, and for what purpose? But here's what I have to tell you, is your calling is exactly the same as Mary's. Exactly the same. Yes, Mary bodily carried the Savior of the world into the world, but we carry God within our bodies as well into the world everywhere we go. And so, no, we don't carry the Savior of the world and lay him in a manger in a stable, but we carry the Spirit of God within us, and he shows himself to the world by working through us. Our calling is exactly the same calling as what Mary's is. It's just as big, it's just as bold, it serves the same purpose. It's just a matter, are we willing to do it? So we have the question, is it worth it to give up everything to follow Christ? be an outcast in this world to be considered different is it worth it i've got a picture coming up up here i love this picture i think it, it really shows kind of what it's like to be in this moment of decision is is it worth it if you can't see it it's got a little girl and she's holding on to a little tiny teddy bear and it's got jesus reaching out to her and and you can kind of see from the motion that he's saying you know give it to me and he's saying trust me and the little girl is holding on to that teddy bear clenching it so tightly and says but I love it. I love what I have. But from her perspective, she can't see what Jesus is planning to give her. Have you ever been in that moment where Jesus Christ comes to you, where God comes to you and he says, I, I, need, you, I need you to give something up 
and you don't know why he's asking you that and you're just clinging to it and you're like but I love it I love my life I love that relationship I love I love that hobby I don't want to give it up and he's saying just trust me you ever fought with that what happens when you do give it up when you give into his will I've never read a person that said that my life didn't get immediately better. As I researched this picture, I found some, some controversy, some people talking about Jesus is trying to trick her. He would never do it that way. Um, he, he would never make you give something up to get something that's works, you know, trying to make you earn something. And, and I understand where they're coming from. But I think the point of the picture is not what Jesus is trying to make her do. It's what Jesus is trying to give her and her ability to receive it. See, if you look at that picture... Her arms are full of that small teddy bear. Her arms are too full to have anything else. And she's never going to be able to hang on to that new thing Jesus Christ is wanting to give her as long as she holds on to that first. And sometimes the, our Savior comes to us and he says, I want to give you something, but you have to empty your arms first. Because he knows we can't carry both what we have and what he wants to give us at the same time. So he says, trust me, let go, be willing to follow me with everything. But will you let it go so I can fill your arms with something greater? You see this a lot in the Bible as a, as a concept. Paul, who wrote a good majority of the New Testament, Paul had everything in the world. Paul was a Pharisee. He was well regarded for his age. He was young, yet he was a leader. He was going places. There's no telling where he would have been had he kept on in that life. And Jesus Christ comes to him and he says, follow me. And Paul had to release his entire life, everything that he had built. He had built a career out of hating Christians, and now he had to become one. But God came to him and said, you've got to let that go so I can fill your arms with something greater. Matthew was the same way. Matthew was a tax collector. He sat in a booth all day, and people brought him money, and he did the books, and he's probably the only person in town who could do math. And so when people came and he calculated their taxes, he got paid very well, and he could take as much off the top as he wanted to. He could look down at the things that you owe $150 this month. He said, that'll be $300. And he'd slide that other in his pocket. And he lived a, a life where he pursued wealth. And one day, Jesus walks by his booth and he turns around and he says to Matthew, follow me. And in order for Matthew to follow Jesus Christ, he had to let go of that life. He had to let go of the money. He had to let go out of, of all the things that he had that nobody else had. He lived a life nobody would have lived. He had to let it go so that God could fill his arms with something greater. And I think that this is a perfect picture of what it's like to be us because I see that in the same story of Mary. Mary had to let go or be willing to let go of what she thought her life was going to be to accept the calling of Jesus Christ. Mary had to be willing to let go of Joseph. You don't think that crossed her mind? What will Joseph think if I end up pregnant? Mary had to be able to let go of her family. Mary had to be able to let go of her reputation. Mary had to be able to let go of everything so that she could follow God. And I guarantee you any of these people I mentioned never regretted a second of it. Our last take-home truth today is this, is to live the outcast life. I have to be able to empty my arms. And so as we sit here today, I want to ask you a question. What is God calling you to empty your arms of in this moment? What is it that we're, we're hanging on to and God's saying, I want to fill your arms with something greater, but you've got to be willing to empty them so that you will be able to receive it. Maybe for some of us, God may be calling us to, to let go of some friends or somebody we're dating and God says, I, I have a better life for you than you're ever going to be with those friends, but you've got to be willing to let go of them, dive into your local church, meet followers of Christ and build relationships with them, but you've got to let go of your old friends first. 
Maybe it's somebody we're dating. Maybe, maybe God's saying, you know what? I have a spouse picked out for you and you're gonna be so happy, but I can't give them to you until you let go of who you're hanging on to in this particular moment. Maybe he's calling us to let go of some of our hobbies. Those things that take up too much time and that keep us from being in places where we can serve God and that keep us from being in places where we can grow in God. And God's saying, you spend too much time playing video games. You spend too much time looking at Razorback stuff. You spend too much time hunting. You spend too much time, those are mine. And he's saying, I need you to let those go so that I can fill you with something more. Maybe it's hobbies that he's not pleased with. Maybe God's saying, I need you to give up the nightlife so that you can live the life I've called you to. Maybe I need you to be that weird person at work when everybody's talking about that new Netflix show and everybody's like, have you seen it? And I'm like, no, I I had to let that go because it just has things in it that God's not pleased with and I don't want that in my house. So I let it go so God could fill me with something else. Maybe God's calling some of us to let go of our own pride. This ideal that people look up to us this, this idea that everybody likes us and admit that we need a little bit of help. Maybe we have to let go of the fact that we think we can fix it ourselves and say, hey, I need you to be my accountability partner because I have anger issues and I need somebody to help me bring that back. Maybe we have to admit that nobody knows it, but I've got an alcohol addiction. I can't get through the day without it and I've got to let that go. Maybe we need to admit we have other addictions, other substance or or pornography addictions that we need help with. Maybe we need to have conversations with people and say our relationship has to change or I have to walk away from you. I have to empty my arms of everything about me to let God fill them. And for some of us in here today, God is asking us to empty ourselves for the first time of ourselves to put our personal trust in him, to quit thinking I'm too smart for religion, to quit thinking I don't need a God to save me, to quit thinking I'll put it off next week or I don't want to be embarrassed that way. Maybe God is asking us, empty your arms of that so that I can do something in your life. And I promise you this, the outcast life may not be easy, but there's not a person I've ever met who regrets taking that path. There's not a person I've ever met who regrets letting go of something because they see somewhere down the road God filled their arms with something more and they realize I had to get rid of that in my life for God to do something more special. And so I'm gonna ask you again, if we could have the musicians, please. What is God calling you to let go of today? What is it that he wants you to empty your arms of? And, And think about it this way, not what you're giving up, but be like Mary and think about what a blessing it is to get what he wants to fill me with. This is our response time. And I just challenge every person in this room, don't, don't leave here with your arms still clenched around that little small teddy bear, whatever it is. You can take care of it in your pew. This is available to pray up here. I'll pray with you. Go across the church and ask any person in here, would you just pray with me about this? And there's not a person in here who's gonna say no. They're gonna cry and hug you and say, yes, I will. Don't leave here not doing what God asked you to do this morning. Would you pray?